Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. All right. Good morning, Mercy family. Good morning, man. Some of y'all are having a a tough morning because you didn't believe in the devil until this morning. Man, you woke up. It was 37 degrees, raining. There's still pollen somehow. Somebody stole an hour of sleep from you. You're like, I don't even know if God is real, but surely a supernatural evil is afoot. And Duke won the ACC championship. It's, yep. Celebrate your devil, and that's why we're preaching God's word. All right. Um, hey, I do want to give you, um, speaking of hope, uh, give you um, a quick heads up. Y'all, it's kind of crazy. Easter is four Sundays from right now, um, which is kind of insane to me, but a couple of things that means. Number one, it means you need to start inviting people like now, okay? Don't wait until the day before, a couple of days before, and invite. Go ahead and invite now. And man, start praying now. We're fasting and praying every Wednesday. And this is part of the reason why every Wednesday leading up to Easter is we're praying, Lord, who do you have, man, that is far from you, but is close to me, like right next to me right now. They might be far from God, but they're close to you. I want you to start praying for them and inviting them. That's why we're adding a service to both of our campuses in expectation that God is going to move among people in our community. And he's going to use us uh, to do that. Easter is packed around here. You're going to hear all about uh, details at the end. But one thing I'll tell you is um, we're going to do baptisms on Easter Sunday. And some of you need to get baptized. All right. You need to take that step uh, of following Jesus. And I'll tell you, man, what better day to be baptized than Resurrection Sunday? where symbolically we put you down into the water and bring you back out because you are saying, yes, I believe that Christ died for my sins and rose again, giving me new life. Um, And not only, you need to tell those friends that you're inviting to church um, for Easter, you need to tell them that you're gonna be baptized, some of you, because that is a powerful testimony. I'm telling you, they will be honored by the invitation. And I've seen God save so many people through the testimony of their friends. And what more powerful testimony than in baptism? So if that's you, you need to take that step. Why don't you come talk to me or one of our other pastors after the service or sometime soon, and we'll talk through all of that, all right? I'm excited for Easter. We got a lot, um, yeah, just really excited for it. But now let's jump into our sermon, 1 Samuel 16. You got a copy of God's word. Head over to 1 Samuel 16. If you don't have a copy of scripture, I'll have all the stuff up on the screen, all right? But On your way out, we've got Bibles for you, and I'd love to give you one of both of our campuses. We have those. I'd love for you to take that. We want you to have God's Word in your hands day in, day out. Today in 1 Samuel 16, we're going to meet the largest figure in the Old Testament and most important figure in the Bible outside of Jesus. I mean, you got like Father Abraham of Israel. He gets 14 chapters. The great prophet Elijah gets 10 chapters. Moses gets the book of Exodus. Yes, he writes the whole Pentateuch, but it's the only one that really focuses on him. A couple other chapters, you know, here and there. But man, David, who we meet today, 
gets 66 chapters devoted to him. He's mentioned 600 times in the Old Testament, 60 times in the New. The Jewish national flag still carries his star. He's this gifted musician and poet. At the same time, he is a savage kind of warrior, can kill a lion and a bear, a great warrior on the battlefield. We'll see you next week, but he's also an incredible leader and the greatest statesman that Israel ever had. The rest of our time in 1 Samuel is going to focus on David of Bethlehem. And I give you that quick little bio of him to say to all of you achievers here today, even the kingdoms of Jeff Bezos and Beyonce and Elon Musk and Joanna Gaines, all of them pale in comparison to the achievements and to the kingdom of King David of Bethlehem. And here's the thing, as God introduces us to that great David today, he is going to tell us none of that stuff matters. None of it matters. He's going to tell us that above all, what he really cares about is the heart. Today is very much part two of last week's sermon. Pastor Scott did a wonderful job for us. We saw what brought down King Saul was half-hearted obedience. God wanted Saul's heart. He wanted all of it. Saul kept some stuff back from God. He said, I'll obey you, but only up to this point. And then I want to kind of do the rest of it my way. I cannot, I want you to loud and clear. God's going to say, I want your whole heart today. I can't overstate how important this passage, 1 Samuel 16, is in your understanding of God and of how you are to live your life inside of his world. So we said in 1 Samuel, we're just kind of walking through, seeing these different figures walk through their lives in God's world. This is so important. Today, we're seeing the very heart of God. Our subject matter for today is simply what God wants from you. What does God want from you? And I'm excited for that because some of you have been wondering it. What does God want from me? Maybe it's been in a space of like frustration or weariness and you're kind of throwing your hands up a little bit. God, what do you want from me? Maybe it's in a face, uh, kind of in a space of curiosity. You're trying to figure God out and you're saying, God, what would you want from me? What do you, what do you want from me? So I'm gonna walk us through this chapter. I'm gonna show you what's going on. And then I'm gonna show you the three things that God wants from you. Just walk through the chapter, just show you what's happening. And then we'll kind of comb back through it, pull out three things God wants from you. All right, that's what we're doing today. So. 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. I know it's 9 a.m. You ready? Yeah. yeah, you are. I mean, you're at church. You might as well be. We're going to do this. So here we go. The Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? All right. You got to remember Samuel's past to understand this. Samuel's mom was a woman named Hannah. If you remember her back from chapter one in our opening sermon in this series, Hannah has a vision that there is going to be a king that's going to come. He's going to be a, an embodiment of God's love and goodness. He's this king is going to use power the way God uses power to lift up the poor and oppressed from the ashes. He's an anointed king. He's going to be an anointed king in Hebrew, a Messiah in Greek, a Christ. The king is going to come. And then Samuel in his lifetime gets to be the one to anoint the king. And he's thinking, how amazing is this? I've got to be a part of, uh, an integral part of, seeing my mom's, a prophecy that God gave to my mom to actually see that come true. But now 
this king has turned out awful. Saul's rise to power was tainted by the corrupt desires of Israel and by the sinful flesh of Saul himself. And so he's mourning. His dead mother's vision came to fruition only to be spoiled fruit. And God says, you got to stop mourning. You got to stop mourning. There's more to the story. And man, I was thinking about this just this morning. There's more to the story. And for some of you, that's what you need to hear right now. You're at the end of chapter 15 in your days and in your life and whatever's going on. You knew God had answered a prayer, then life went sideways and now you're stuck in mourning. And what I'm telling you is chapter 16's coming. God's just getting started. You're stuck in chapter 15 mourning. I'm not telling you not to mourn right now with whatever's going on, but I am telling you to lift your eyes up a little bit to see chapter 16 because King David is coming. Some of you simply need to hear today that what feels like the final chapter is not God's final work in your life. I'm not discrediting what you've been through, but for us here, God's people now living, breathing, he is not done. There's more to our story. So he says, fill your horn with oil and go. Because we are sent people. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I've selected for myself a king from his sons. Okay, heads up, Bible reading tip. Whenever you see Bethlehem, you should pause and your antenna should go up. This is that Bethlehem, a little town of. That's the one that we're talking about right here, okay? This means something big's going down. Verse two, Samuel asked, how can I go? Saul's gonna hear about it and kill me. The Lord answered, take a young cow with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Basically, the reason he's worried about Saul killing him is because in the last chapter, Samuel had said, Saul, you're not gonna be king anymore. There's going to be somebody else. And now Samuel's worried that Saul is going to have his emissaries sent out to kill him if he goes anywhere off the beaten path. Saul's got people looking and saying, hey, if you see Samuel going somewhere, maybe that means he's going to anoint a new king. You watch out for him. So the Lord says, just do what a prophet would do. Take a cow. You're going to sacrifice. All right. Be the spiritual leader of Israel. So pay a visit in that capacity. Verse three, invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will let you know what you are to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. I love this main point throughout scripture. God is actively involved. He didn't say, go and good luck. He said, no, no, just, just like when it was with Saul, I'm going to be right there with you and I'm going to show you what to do. Verse four, Samuel did what the Lord directed and went to Bethlehem. When the elders of the town met him, they trembled and asked, do you come in peace? Now, again, this is very much picking up from last week. If you're wondering why they asked this, just kind of scan back up a few verses to the end of chapter 15. And what you will find is prophet Samuel goes a little medieval. Okay, I guess it'd be pre-medieval, but whatever it was, he goes a little wild because Saul has not done what God told him to do. God said, I want you to wipe out everybody. I don't have time in, in this sermon to get into why that's okay. But God says, wipe out everybody. And Saul's left some people, including the king of the Amalekites, King Agog, right? Or Agag. I don't know if it's Agag, but I'm in the South. So we're just going to stretch those A's out. Okay. King Agag. All right. And Samuel's like, you were supposed to kill him. And you didn't. Watch this. And Samuel hacks King Agag into pieces in front of Saul and says, this is what you were supposed to do. Well, word gets out about that kind of thing, okay? That would have broken TikTok if they'd have had it in their day. You know what I mean? It gets out, 
So of course these guys are like, do you come in peace? Do you have a sword? You know what I mean? They're, they're nervous. And so verse five, he says, in peace, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and said, certainly, certainly the Lord, the Lord's anointed one is here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I've rejected him. What this is telling us is that Eliab must have looked something like Saul in terms of his physical appearance. He's a head taller than everybody else. Probably all conference center mid in Bethlehem high school soccer team, right? He never skips leg day. This is Eliab. This is who we're seeing. And the Lord says, no, don't look at his appearance. Don't look for a second Saul. The purpose of Saul looking the way that he did was to show Israel how futile their idea of a king is. And then the Lord says, what I think is the most important verse in all of 1st and 2nd Samuel. Humans do not see what the Lord sees. For humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. The Lord sees the heart. My hope for today is that you take this verse home and you memorize it. I want you to memorize it. I want you to receive it like God's antidote to one of the worst infections sin will cause in your soul. One of the worst things that sin does is it makes us look outward at the world and judge others by what we see in them. And in the reverse, it makes us constantly worried about how we are being judged. And our big takeaway today is that the Lord's concern is not with the things that are visible. His concern is the one thing that only he can see, and that's your heart. Now, what's your heart? Physically, your heart is the blood pumping organ, the, the most vital organ, the center that makes everything else go. Well, scripture uses that as a metaphor, right? It's your inner self. It's the driver, the motivator, the thing that makes you do what you do. And the Lord says, that's what I want. That's what I see. That's what matters. That's my focus. Don't fall victim, Samuel. I see you. Don't fall victim to that tall Saul syndrome that Israel fell victim to. That's not my choice. That's Israel's choice. I'm looking internal. I'm looking at the heart. Verse eight, Jesse called Abinadab and presented him to Samuel. The Lord hadn't chosen this one either, Samuel said. Then Jesse presented Shema, but Samuel said, the Lord hadn't chosen this one either. After Jesse presented seven of his sons to him, Samuel told Jesse, the Lord hadn't chosen any of these. Samuel asked him, are these all your sons? Are these all the sons you have? Because he told me that he's going to choose a king from among your sons. And he said no to every last one of these. Is there a chance somebody's missing? And Jesse goes, well, I mean, they're still the youngest, he answered. But right now he's tending sheep. And when you see youngest, the Hebrew connotation there is like the runt of the litter. All right, really, he's keeping the sheep. That's the lowest job in Israel. Now he does it well. He's a protector. In fact, he kills big time predators, but he's not physically imposing like his older brother. And that's the point. That's the whole point. He's not a head taller than the rest like Saul. He's forgettable. Well, when Samuel hears there's the youngest and he's just been told by God, I don't look at the outward appearance, I look at the heart. Samuel's like, um, go get him. In fact, we're not eating until he gets here. 
That's the next word. Samuel told Jesse, send for him. We won't sit down to eat until he gets here. So Samuel sent for him. He had, this is the first description of David, or the next description of David, beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Okay. The word handsome there is actually the word ruddy. He's ruddy in the appearance. That means he looks like Paul Rudd. Okay, you understand? That's what that, what that means. Now, of course, the, the irony here is that God doesn't care about it. That's the, the beautiful irony here. Nothing could matter less. But in terms of trying to think of what David looks like, you know, uh, you're trying to picture him in your mind's eye. You got to think like a small fit singer songwriter type. All right. That's what we're looking right here. It's like Zach Taylor, our elder that leads worship here sometimes. Um, anyways, then the Lord said, anoint him for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. And then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. The spirit of the Lord coming on David. This is like the reality here. This is the divine anointing that accompanies the symbolic anointing of the oil on his head. This right here is the only reason David succeeds at anything he does because the spirit of the Lord is on him. He's filled with the spirit of the Lord. That is the only reason he is successful in what God calls him to do. Now, God deems him worthy of giving him his spirit, right? Because he's not full of himself. So he is open to be filled by the spirit. This is a little side here, but it's important. If you're too full of yourself, there's no room for God to fill you with the spirit. And God might need to take some of you through a real humbling so that you can be used by him for his glory. God's very spirit is now with David, the unlikely younger brother that God has chosen because God has a habit of choosing the unlikely one to accomplish his mission so that he will get glory. We're going to get back to that. Verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul and an evil spirit sent from the Lord began to torment him. All right. Best I can tell after months of study, here's what I know. It's not the only time God does this in the Old Testament. It happens in Judges 9, 2 Kings 19, and 2 Kings 22. I know that word evil there can mean anything from misery, as if like God sent an angel to make Saul miserable, or it can mean like your moral perverseness, like a demon, all right? And God sent a demon. Well, which one is it? Here's what I know. It's a supernatural assault led at God's direction, and it was brought on by God's disobedience from chapter 15. I also know, and this is what's important. It says the spirit of the Lord left Saul. The spirit of the Lord will not leave Christians today. I need you to know that. That's a promise from Ephesians 1 and from Ephesians 4. You are sealed by the promised Holy Spirit until the day of your redemption. The spirit's taken up permanent residence in you. You do not have to fear God's spirit leaving you. That's a promise from Christ. Because does God send evil spirits to torment us? We have no certainty from the New Testament on that. We have circumstances. Paul says he has a thorn in his flesh. It's a messenger from Satan, he says. Peter accuses Ananias and Sapphira of being filled with Satan when they lie to the church. Jesus calls Peter, Satan. Could these all be word plays? Yes, they could be. Well, well, here's what I'll tell you. Whatever happens, I know Romans 8 is still true. I know that the spirit of God in you is greater than anything that's going to come against you. 
right? And Romans 8 tells me we are more than conquerors. So what can, here, I'll tell you Romans 8. This is in the Bible. I got one. Romans 8. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, because of you, we're being put to death all day long, counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No is the answer. Can anything that comes against you separate you from God? No is the definitive answer. And all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. You got to hear that, y'all. I want you to, I don't know exactly what God is doing there in 1 Samuel 16, but I know what he is doing in us. And he has promised that the spirit of God will never leave us. That's a promise from Christ. Well, Saul's servants suggest that in lieu of what's happening to him, that they get a musician to play the lyre. Think like handheld harp, okay? Maybe that's a guitar. We don't know. And it will soothe Saul when the spirit torments him. So Saul gives a thumbs up. Verse 18, one of the young men answered, I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's also a valiant man, a warrior, eloquent, handsome, and most importantly, underline, it's gonna, the the Bible's gonna say this like four times in chapter 18. The Lord is with him. That's David's theme. The Lord is with him. It's how he defeats Goliath, wins battles, escapes capture. The Lord is with him. Verse 19, Saul dispatched messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son, David, you know, the one who's with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and wineskin, or a wineskin, and one young goat and sent them by a son, David, to Saul. Can you imagine if you've been here kind of following along with us through this? Saul's reaction when a donkey comes walking up, Donkeys are the ones that are at the start of Saul's whole journey, right? Saul, go find the donkeys. It had to be a donkey. You had to hear him kind of say that, right? But even on a more serious note, what you're seeing here, even in this opening chapter, is how David is going to be a forerunner, a foreshadow of Christ. What does Jesus ride into Jerusalem on? On a donkey, right? My point is the whole of David's life is going to be pointing us to Jesus, the greater David. And the reason Jesus of Bethlehem rides in on a donkey is because his ancestor, David of Bethlehem, rode in on the same unimpressive animal. Verse 21, when David came to Saul and entered his service, Saul loved him very much. David became his armor bearer. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, let David remain in my service for he has found favor with me. Whenever the spirit of God came on Saul, David would pick up his lyre and play and Saul would be relieved, feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. This is the dynamic that makes David, it ingratiates him to Saul. Of course it does. Under the spirit of God, he provides relief, get this, to the very one sitting on his throne. He's been anointed for that throne. Spirit of the Lord has left that guy. It's on him and he knows it. But you don't see David trying to throw a coup right here. Just because he was anointed doesn't mean his time has come yet. So he waits on the Lord. Man, some of you super talented young warriors that God has just anointed, just because he's anointed you, he has gifted you, doesn't mean your time has come yet. If there's one thing I can encourage you, it's the hardest thing to hear, but it's to wait on the Lord. He had a work to do in David as he waited out in the wilderness. And as he waits now, even in the very like throne room in Saul's court, he's waiting And there's a powerful work God does in your waiting. It's another sermon for another time. 
Here's the deal. I told you I'd show you three things that God wants from you in this chapter. Here they are. First thing, hopefully the obvious one in the take home. God wants your heart. He wants your heart. Humans do not see what the Lord sees. Humans see what is visible. The Lord sees the heart. He's going to call David a man after his own heart. He's going to say in Romans 10s, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Remember your heart. It's your motivational center, your belief center. I know some of you are like me and you would say, I'm a thinker, not a feeler. I get it. Okay. You hear me talking about the heart and you hear feelings and you think, okay, I know I was like you. I drift that way still. Maybe this will help. If you think of yourself as a car, the heart is both the engine and the steering wheel. It powers and steers all of your thoughts, words, and actions. Proverbs is going to say it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And that thing that powers and steers everything else, that's what God wants. He calls it your heart. He says, I want that. He looks at your heart. He does not want your performance. He does not care about your resume. Let me say this way. He doesn't care about your behaviors as much as he cares about the heart. This is the heart of Christianity. God wants your heart. Please hear me. Memorize this verse. Because it is the antidote to the pride that the enemy will use to actually drive a wedge between you and God without you realizing it. He wants the deep down, God wants the deep down core. Some of you, I know you've been faking it in your Christianity, in your Christian life and walk. You've been putting on a show in your heart though. You're actually angry. You're bitter. You're filled with lust. You're bored. You are physically present, but the heart is attracted to something else and is not here. Guys, I, you manage, you can fool everyone. You might be an elder in our church and put on a really good show. What I know is that God already knows what's going on in your heart. He sees it. That thing you haven't voiced to anybody yet. He sees it. And he says, I see you. Give that heart to him. And then he says, when you do, you can be free from that thing that is weighing you down, that is burdening you, that's causing you so much pain. Religion says you need to perform for God and God will reward your obedience. He'll reward your resume. When you abide by that mentality, it creates what the Bible calls Pharisees. People who feel entitled and better than everybody else around them because they perform better than everybody else. So listen to the gospel, Christian, and preach it way down in the heart today. You do not perform to earn God's acceptance. Your performance does not make you better than anyone. You receive God's acceptance just as you are right there, not because of your work, but because of Christ's work. And then you obey as an act of worship, an act of worship to the one who loved you right where you were. Here's the way we've said it before, a paradigm that I got from my old pastor, Simple as this, religion says, I obey and therefore I'm accepted. Because I've obeyed, I'm accepted by God. But the gospel says, no, 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 no. I've been accepted. And because I've been accepted, therefore I obey. What great news to the Christian who's now feeling guilty because you haven't been performing well lately. And you got to try and figure out how to perform enough so that you can start feeling good about yourself in comparison to others. 
But also what great news to the unreligious person who's walked in here. It means God is actually concerned with the real authentic you. He's not bothered that your life is a mess right now. That's not a scorecard. You come to him with nothing and receive grace because he wants your heart. You can come to him broken and receive love because he wants your heart. God welcomed prostitutes, adulterers, extortioners, and many more into his kingdom when they gave their hearts to him. You don't go and change to be accepted by God. You experience God's acceptance of you in Christ. Yes, your sin has to be paid for. I'm not making light of it. God sees your sin. He doesn't say it doesn't matter. He says, I see it. You do have to pay for it. But instead of you paying for it, I'm going to put that payment on Christ on the cross and you're going to walk away free. You're going to walk away new. Not because of, don't go and try and clean yourself up. It will never work. Don't waste your life down that road. Just receive what I've done for you. Receive what I've done for you. Oh, it's beautiful. And when you experience God's acceptance of you, you experience his spirit alive in you, then he changes you. That's where transformation comes from. Here's the second thing God wants. God wants your weakness. So I see in this, in the, the anointing of David, God wants your weakness. Your weakness is gonna be the stage that he is going to perform his work in. David's story is the story of scripture. God chooses the unlikely and the weak to carry out his greatest feats because he gets more glory. This is 1 Corinthians 1. God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. Why? So that no one may boast in his presence. Because only one is getting glory and it's God alone. Your weakness is going to be the stage for his next work. Think about who God chooses. God chooses unlikely old Abraham and Sarah to be the parents of Israel. He chooses a slow of speech orphan slave child in Moses to be the one that delivers his people from mighty Egypt. He chooses Rahab, the prostitute, to provide the key victory for his people in Jericho. He chooses Noah, who becomes overcome in drunkenness to preserve the human race. He chooses, again, Abraham is the father of many nations. Jacob, neither the firstborn nor honest, he's the youngest, he's a deceiver. He's the one that he continues his bloodline through. He chooses Leah, rejected and unloved by her husband as an ancestor to King David, ultimately Jesus. He chooses Naomi, an untrusting, bitter widow. He chooses Gideon, the youngest of all of his clan in Manasseh, who was hiding in fear from the Midianites to become the valiant warrior and judge. He chooses a womanizer, Samson, to free the Israelites from the Philistines. He chooses Elijah, who was so scared, he asked God to end his own life to be a mighty prophet. He chooses the young Jewish girl, Esther, to become queen and save the Jewish people. He chooses Jonah, who literally ran away from him to go and deliver Nineveh. He chooses a donkey to warn Balaam against danger. I had to put that one in there. He chooses young virgin Mary to bear his son. He chooses a lowly nobody carpenter to be its father. He chooses nowhere Bethlehem to be the setting. Jesus chooses disciples who are blue collar nobodies to carry out his ministry. He rides into Jerusalem 
on a donkey, not a noble steed. He chooses Saul, his very enemy, killing Christians to become the greatest evangelist and church planter. If I had time, I'd tell you about church history and people like Polycarp and Luther and Annie Armstrong and Ignatius and Lottie Moon and Jeremiah Lanfear and Charles Octavius Booth and George Lyle. Nobodies that God used to do great works in his kingdom. Y'all, my favorite story, my favorite story recently out of this um. This revival that uh, is being called a revival up in Asbury, Kentucky. It's the story set um, of the, the young preacher. He goes, he preaches a sermon in chapel, and it was kind of following this revival breaks out, but not immediately. He preaches the sermon, dismisses everybody, and texts his wife on his way home. All he says was, latest stinker, be home soon. Man, did God use that stinker. Right? Nobody, nothing, so that he can get glory. And I belabor this point to show you how little God is concerned with your stature, your resume, your achievements. If anything, they threaten to take glory from him. Your weakness, your unlikeliness, man, everything you're thinking through right there, he's like, give it to me because I'm gonna build a stage for my next work through it. You offer that to him. God, you know, I'm nervous talking to people. Give it to me. I'll build the stage for my next work. God, you know, I'm not a leader. You know, I have no idea how to parent a teen. God, I've got no idea how to mentor an engaged couple. I'm not even sure how to be married. God, I've never been on a mission trip. God, I've never tithed before. I've never shared the gospel before. I don't know how. I don't have experience. I don't have strength. I don't have a resume. God, you know, I passed. You know, I've messed up. You know, I've hurt others. You know, I've hurt myself. God, I'm giving it all to you. Watch him. That's the stage for his next work in your life. He uses your weakness for his glory. Y'all, he gets more glory that way. Give it to him. That's who he chooses. Unlikely people who give him their whole hearts. Their weakness becomes the stage of his next work. And that's scary to give him our weakness. But I'm telling you, it's where you're going to have to trust him. And it's where he gets glory. Here's the last thing I'll share with you. What I see in here is David is anointed. God anoints you in Christ. And so he wants your yes. This is important. Samuel anoints David for God's calling on his life. Sends him out with a mission to be the new king. It's important that we're not, we're not David. You'll see this repeatedly throughout this time. Jesus is the one who's anointed by God with a mission to save the world from sin and death. But then 2 Corinthians 1.22 says in Christ, through Christ, we are anointed. We are given promises. We are given the spirit of the Lord. He rushed on the disciples at Pentecost and he rushes on to, comes on to every believer when you receive salvation in Christ. And then we are sent out. We're anointed for a purpose. We are given the Holy Spirit for a purpose. And this is deeply comforting to me. Pretty much as soon as the Spirit comes on David, he encounters difficulty. Multiple times he winds up in the wilderness. Difficulty and wilderness, they're not the signs that God is absent. They are the scene of where God reveals his presence. God anoints you with his Spirit for his mission, and he just asks for your yes. Put your yes on the table. Watch him go to work. That's why we use next step language all the time around here. Because God has anointed you for his mission. You really are. When we say at the end of service, you are sent. It's because you really are sent. You really are by God. You have been anointed by him, set apart by him. First Peter 2, 9 and 10 is going to say you are a 
chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people that he has pulled together, set apart for his own possession. And it's going to say, so that, there's a reason, so that you can proclaim the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you weren't a people, but now you're God's people. Because once you hadn't received mercy, but now you've received mercy. And mercy is the only thing you need. He's good, y'all. He's good. What's the next step God's put in front of you? Simple way to sum this up. He wants your heart. Give him your heart. That thing way down deep, that core. Give it to him today. Give him your weakness. Give him your yes. That is how we flourish in our world. We're going to respond to God's word by taking communion together. Communion is this physical meal that God gave the disciples to take regularly when they gathered to take it as a way to remember that it's not about their performance. It's that gospel antidote to pride, to saying it's about me, going straight back to the heart, saying, remember what he did for you. What we're going to have is for those of you newer to church, Listen, if you're not a Christian, please don't take communion, okay? This is a symbol reserved for the church. And each person that takes it says, I'm taking this because I believe what Christ has done. There's bread and there's a cup. The bread symbolizes, Jesus says to his disciples, the body of Christ that's given for you. The blood, the cup symbolizes his blood shed for you. And as we eat and drink, we celebrate and identify with what Christ has done for us. And we say, I believe, but if you're not a Christian, don't take that. Instead, consider the message of the gospel, the message behind the symbol, the message that this meal represents. Christ died for you. As we've said today, he died for your sins. You don't have to clean yourself up. Just receive it, receive it and believe. I'm gonna pray for you. And then we'll transition into taking the elements together. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have set this whole thing up <laughs> where you want our hearts, not our performance. What relief this is to me. What grace. Thank you that you sent a second and greater David to come and save us, your people. Thank you for Jesus. Father, may we yield our very hearts, that deep core of who we are. May we yield it to you today. May we come to you offering our weakness. Pray that we would, as we receive communion in, in a Appropriate humility, a posture of humility, God. Help us to be thankful, to be overwhelmed and in awe of what you did for us. And then offer our lives as worship. Offer our yes as joyful worship. Thank you, Father. We praise you. We worship you. In Christ's holy name, amen.